Hello, everyone. Hello, Tribesters and our extended tribe. Okay, so today I'm super excited to welcome Drew Duckworth, who is the farm manager at Millstone Farm in Wilton, Connecticut. Just so everyone knows, Drew is my brother, which is one of the reasons I'm so excited to have him on, but also because he has so much to share with us about regenerative farming. So he is the farm manager, as I said, at Millstone Farm in Connecticut. And Millstone is a family-run farm and it's committed, committed to regenerative farming practices. So he's going to give us the ins and outs of what regenerative farming is, why it's so important, um, and how we as individuals can support it. Um, so Drew, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely, happy to be here. And you're in a beautiful setting. That is not a virtual setting. That is an actual green backdrop. Yes, it is. Yeah, any moment I can be outdoors, I'll take it. Yeah, so good for the soul. Um, okay, let's start just about you. I obviously know all about you, but no one else does. So share your journey and how you got to where you are now from Rye, suburbs of New York yeah. City, to farming. Yeah, absolutely. Certainly not the uh, typical path, um, but um, I think it was graduating in 2009 and was trending and tracking towards finance um, and just hadn't really taken a moment to think about what I really wanted to do. Um, and the economic crisis at the time kind of generously gifted me that opportunity. Uh, with no jobs in the marketplace at that point, uh, I took the opportunity to go travel um, in the Western United States, or actually all over the United States, a little bit of Canada um, for four months and visited a lot of national parks, um, was outdoors, backpacking, camping, um, just connecting with the natural world. Um, and came home and just knew that um, I did not want to be in an office. Um, I found my way back out west to uh, Durango, Colorado and wilderness um, therapy. Um, I was working as a guide for adolescent youth, um, going backpacking with them and using the, the wilderness as um, a place to provide therapy and connection to self, um, community and the natural world. Um, that was a week on week off schedule after a few years and tiredness of that. Um, I decided I still wanted to work outdoors, but I wanted to sleep in my own bed every night. Um, so I fell into farming that way. Um, I remember picking cherry tomatoes in the backyard with my mom growing up outside of that. I've not, I can't think of a time before this transition that I ever planted a seed or did any weeding or any type of thing agriculturally. Um, and so I just kind of cut my teeth learning, um, working hard, working side by side with other farmers, living in haylofts, living in screen tents, um, and just, yeah, asking questions, working hard and, um, yeah. And everything from animals to, um, fruit trees to vegetable production. Um, and here I am now, um, at Millstone farm in Connecticut. Um, I'm glad you got to pick cherry tomatoes. I don't really ever remember picking anything. I knew mom did mom did grow some things. You're right, but I don't remember picking them. I'm glad you got that experience. Yeah, I think I might have snuck out there and stolen them. It might not have been a, a task we did together. <laughs> so I know initially, you know, when you're moving into farming, and even now, organic farming is a big um, 
topic, but obviously that's different from regenerative farming. And I'm wondering, can you just give us sort of in layman's terms, what regenerative farming is, and then we can go into the differences with organic farming and how, um, how they differ from one another. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and some people may have heard of regenerative farming or regenerative agriculture, um, and a lot may not have, um, but it is becoming more of a, a buzzword these days. And um, it's not any particular practice that's installed. Um, it's dependent on the farm, on the ecosystem that surrounds it, um, on the management systems of the team. Um, but the easiest way to describe it is we are trying to make the land that we're on better um, than we found it. Um, so a few ways that we can do that, there's a lot of different practices, um, but kind of all the different practices involve mimicking the natural ecosystems of the environment that surround the farm. So um, we're taking into account in Connecticut, um, we're in the Northeast of the United States, um, we have forest land, um, we have open fields, we have wetlands. Um, so it's a mixed um, and diverse ecosystem. Um, so the way and that that's we- just, Sorry, that's not the farm itself. That's obviously the surroundings, that specific area where the farm Correct. is located has all those different types of, okay. Yeah, so on the farm, we try and mimic and adapt to that. Um, so there are certain pockets, there, there are those different ecosystems on the farm. Um, but so we don't try and take over and control what we're doing on the land. And, um, yeah, we work with the natural habitat. Okay. Uh, so all our practices that we implement, like rotational grazing, um, uh, multi-species grazing, um, uh, rotation of crops. Uh, no-till practices, all these things we can dive into a little bit more, but the essence of them is really we're trying to increase the soil depth here, um, which then gives us the capacity to sequester more carbon in the soil and in the root systems of the plants that are growing in the soil, especially in our pasture land with those perennial grasses. Um, and yeah, because when I've done my little bit of um, investigation into regenerative farming. Um, it was all about the soil was what my understanding. If we take care of the soil, then the soil will take care of whatever's growing in it and yes. ultimately us. Yes. Yeah. So okay. once we get the soil to, to a place where it's healthy soil, um, it really limits the amount of inputs that we need. So in a regenerative farm, the, those inputs are mostly, um, human work hours, like hand weeding, hand picking bugs off the plants um, and using some uh, hand tools to help us with those things. In a conventional system, there's a lot of spraying um, chemicals um, that in regenerative farming, we, we stay away from that. Um, so we're not, we're not spraying chemicals. Um, we're completely uh, free of that. And we, by doing that, we're giving the soil the ability to heal and get back to a healthy state. When the soil is there, the soil has everything it needs to provide nutrients to the plants that we're trying to grow or the animals that we're grazing in them. Um, it takes a few years, depending on the environment or farm that you're in, it can take anywhere from three to seven years um, of a lot of 
man hours and a lot of management of systems to really integrate um, those together to get that healthy soil. Okay. And so when you joined, and that was what, three, four years ago? Yes. Been here three and a half years now. And it was already doing using regenerative practices or were you helping to introduce it at that time? Yeah, there were some practices that have become typical of a regenerative farm, um, but not across the board. Um, so it was always practiced organic. So organic practice, but not certified. Okay, so this is great. Let's talk about organic and how that's different from regenerative farming, because yeah. I think there's some um, confusion on one versus the other and why one might be better than the other. Right. So as you mentioned, regenerative farming is all about the soil. Um, it's increasing the soil health, the soil depth, um, the carrying capacity of that soil for plants and animals. Um, it's soil, 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 whatever we can do to just help that soil. Organic started that way. Back in the 70s, the organic movement was all about soil. The USDA has gotten involved to organic, at least in the United States, um, to put definitions to it, what practices are permitted, what paperwork has to be filed. They've also permitted the use of certain chemicals, um, which, um, does not actually help the soil in the end. Um, and then most recently they have taken soil out of the definition of organic with the increase in hydroponic growing. Um, there is no soil in that, those systems. You can still have hydroponic as organic. So what the USDA has done is taken organic out of the definition or soil out of the definition of organic. So bureaucracy has taken organic from the core values that it was and kind of made it into more of a business and acceptable conventional applied the organic principles to the conventional business model of agriculture in the United States. Okay. Regenerative is kind of going back to the roots of organic and focusing on that. There is no, um, yeah, bureaucratic or you can do this, you can't do this. It's just as simple as we're trying to leave this land better than we found it. I love that. I love that idea of, you know, and that's what I guess, you know, as a human being, hopefully we would all want to leave whatever we're leaving right. behind better than what we found it. So it's, you know, in a better state for our children, our children's children and future generations. Um, when it comes to regenerative farming, would we, would, um, a consumer be able to know that they're buying something from a regenerative farm? Is it marketed that way? Are there specific labels? Right. How do we, how do we, um, yeah, find out? Yeah. Um, it can be tricky to navigate it all. I mean, there's not, we don't, we talk about regenerative agriculture. We don't put it on any of our labels. Um, we have it on our website. When we're at the farmer's market, we mention it. Our CSA members know because they come visit the farm. Um, I'm going to interrupt oh. you because I, we have a lot of audience in Europe that probably yeah. doesn't know what a CSA is. So can you just talk them through that? Yeah, CSA is Community Supported Agriculture. Um, it was started in the U.S. Uh, in the 80s. Um, and the idea is to bring the community around the farm to help support the farm. Um, so early on in the season when the... Uh, 
costs and expenses for the farm are high with seed and the work to prep the land. Um, and there's not a lot of uh, money coming in. Um, it's a way to, for the community around it to purchase a share in the farm early on in the season and make a commitment to the farm to, hey, whether it's a boom or bust year, um, we're with you. So the, they pay up front in the spring um, to help get things going. And then throughout the whole season, they come to the farm weekly and they get a share of produce, um, whatever's in season at the time um, to take home and cook for their families. So it's like a subscri subscription in a way. Yeah. And weekly they're getting their batch instead of having, you know, when we were living in London, we would have a delivery come to us weekly from a farm yeah. that we paid sort of a subscription box, but it's a version of that. But they come, they come to, to the farm. So for us, yeah, for it. us and for me, it's important that people come to the farm. Um, yeah, and we can get into that a little bit later about why I yeah. chose farming and fell into that. But yes, for our CSA, they come to the farm. Okay. Let's just go back to the organic farming, organic food principle and versus regenerative. So most um, farms wouldn't necessarily market or a consumer wouldn't necessarily know that they're getting something from a regenerative farm unless they did their own digging or unless they investigated yeah, themselves. That's correct. A lot of the time that would be okay. the case. Um, so for me, organic just means non-GMO which is a good thing. There's a lot of plants out there that are genetically modified. Um, so organic to me, that's all that means. And then honestly, I myself even get confused by all the different labelings. There's pasture raised, there's free range, there's organic, there's natural, there's regenerative. It's a lot of them are just marketing ploys. Yeah. They don't mean anything. There's no definition to them. Uh, yeah. Totally yeah. agree. Oh. And actually I read something really interesting on sell-by dates even it's like we've we've grown up having all these sell-to-buy dates and like oh got to throw that out it's like past the sell-by date and right. it all is a hoax no one really actually knows when something's going to go off and by the way if you smell it and it smells off you know it's off so actually <laughs> yeah. there's no point to be paying attention to the dates if you trust your nose and you have a good scent yeah. you'll be able to tell yeah yeah um, so I think coming back to it, the biggest thing is yet know your farmer, um, eat local. That's the best thing that you can do. You really know if you can put your feet on the ground of the farm that your food's growing in, you'll know. Just like your nose, you can tell if that food is good or bad. When you step on that farm and you see the practices that they have, you see the condition of their animals, you look at what they're doing. If they have, if they're spraying their plants with something or if, um, yeah, they're out there hand weeding, um, each individual has a different preference for how their food should should be grown. And um, it takes the individual going out there um, to see it or talking to the farmer. If you can't get out to the farm, email the farm. I love when I get the emails and people are asking questions because they're interested, they're knowledgeable, they're questioning things. And that's what we all need to be doing. Um, I think we've gotten to a place with our agriculture because we haven't. We've, we haven't asked questions. We haven't demanded um, a certain standard and expectation. Um, and we've gotten to a place where we're, yeah, denuding the landscape and uh, destroying habitat and degrading soil. Um, and it's on us as individuals and consumers to ask those questions and to make those demands of how we want our food. We eat three times, most of us three times a day. Um, 
and it's important what gets put on our plate on our children's plate on our family's plates yeah and ultimately what what's put on the plate is what goes into your body and that actually has a big impact on your mental state and your physical state yeah um let's talk about your reason for farming this is a good a good point to get into that your why yeah um so a lot of different reasons why farmers get into farming um some it's growing food and providing abundance of food for their community some it's their passion for just working and tending plants um some they love animals and do that for me my why is the connection to the natural world um yeah, as I mentioned that uh, cross country trip and then also working in wilderness therapy, the biggest thing for me that I felt every day um, was just connection to the natural world um, that brought yeah, happiness and joy to me and I felt fulfilled. Um, so when I transitioned into farming, um, it was all about still working outdoors, still getting my, my hands dirty, dirt underneath my fingernails. Um, it just... Yeah, it brings me happiness and joy to, to connect with those, uh, with the natural world. Um, there are funny. extra benefits of being able to provide food, being able to teach people um, where their food comes, have conversations like this. Um, but the, the core of it is, is nature connection. Yeah, and it's funny, c- coming from where we grew up, I mean, we were obviously in a suburb, so there was some nature, but like not the type of nature that you're getting and that you've been exposed to. When you first had that experience with nature, mm-hmm. did you feel an, an, an immediate connection? Like, this is my, I need, I need this? Um, I don't think so. Cause I, I think it goes back to camp when I was in back in middle school. So grade six and seven, uh, going to camp in Maine and um, backpacking and paddling and being on a lake and, yeah, in the woods. Um, and I just, I think I took it for granted. I loved it. I knew that I loved it, but then yeah, camp, I grew out of camp and then on to the next thing. And it was, yeah, school and sports. Um, I knew when I went on that trip and I came back that, yeah, I wanted to be out there. It reminded me of camp and just why did I not study this? Why did I not know this before? Why did I not take this trip before college? So I could, focus in on what I wanted to do because I went to school and I, I didn't know what I wanted. Um, yeah, I'm fortunate well, to found, find yeah. myself where I am now and know what I want and wake up every day and be happy about going to work. Yeah. And I think some of that, why didn't I, I know this earlier? Actually, that this was all part of your journey. You needed to go through those steps to get to where you are in order to discover your why. And actually, we talk a lot about or, or I talk a lot about my why and that everyone needs to find their own why, whether yeah. it's why are they interested in embracing well-being? Why are they driven to do what they're doing? Um, it has to be somewhat connected to, it has to be connected to them because otherwise it's yeah. not, um, they can't make long-term change. Right. Like if you just, if you did it just cause it, it was sort of a fad, you'd be in and out pretty quickly, but clearly you are very connected and you understand yeah. that. Yeah. Um, can we talk a little bit about the farm itself and the story behind the farm? Cause it's gorgeous. I've been there and, and you're going to be married there in a few months, which is yeah, exciting. That's true. Yeah. Right behind me here, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So background of the farm, as far back as I know it, is about a hundred years ago. Um, Vincent Tito moved from Norwalk to Wilton um, and he lived on this 70 acres and it was his uh, weekend home. Uh, so Norwalk's just about, well, today's drive is 20 minutes. I don't know what it was like for Vincent back in the day. Um, but he, he grazed some cattle um, and grew a few fruit trees. Um, his family had it up until about the 50s, uh, 1950s, early 60s, um, and they increased the cattle herd. So it was all grazable land. It was all open. Uh, some photos of it show a drastically different landscape, um, overgrazed. Um, and then in the 50s or 60s, when they sold, it became another weekend home for somebody who lived in the city, uh, New York City, uh, about nowadays, again, hour 15 drive. Um, and then they had it up until about the 90s and then pressure from real estate development came in and the town, the land trust and the current or the previous owner um, put it into conservation protection. Uh, so there's an easement on the property that protects it from development. Um, there's a certain area, eight acres that um, there's permitted development on and then outside of that eight acres and the rest of the portion of the 70 acres um it's only limited to um certain restrictions uh for building capacity um and most of them are related to agricultural building structures and systems around that time they had a pony club here um so a lot of people from the town were learning to ride here um and then it transitioned to a large market garden um, mostly for home use. And then about 15, 16 years ago now, um, quasi similar to what we're doing here today on multi-species grazing and larger vegetable production uh, to really justify it as a farm. Um, and then five years ago, new owners purchased it. Um, and then three years ago, I came and we've transitioned to fully regenerative farming. We've really instilled some practices here um, that really help us do just take care of this landscape um, and take care of the, the health of our, our neighbors and our community, whether that's um, the human or the non-human. Um, yeah, so we have currently uh, livestock wise, we probably have about 600 chickens on the property right now 400 of them being egg layers and 200 of them being meat chickens um we've got pigs we've got sheep we've got goats we've got llamas we've got horses and we'll have turkeys soon and i think that's all the animals we have a lot of dogs also running around uh, and they're probably the happiest ones here um but that's livestock wise what we have and then veggie production um we're small scale diversified so we grow a little bit of everything um our focus if we had to choose one would be greens salad mix arugula um charred kale um that's our biggest uh item uh, and is there a reason for that is it um, um I, it's just uh yeah i think a salad is pretty common uh before dinner everybody has, has a salad or a portion okay. of dinner um yeah it's your big seller our big seller are we, yeah. Big seller. yeah um, um just yeah, talking we grow everything else roots and fruits i mean beets carrots um tomatoes peppers um yeah we sell most of it fresh and then we do 
preserve from some of it and make some hot sauce and pasta sauce, uh, things like that. Um, and because you're farming and in this way, I would assume that obviously you're, the rotation is happening and then you're getting different seasonal vegetables. Yes, absolutely. Depending on the time of year. Yeah, so we are, um, yeah, we do get four seasons here. Um, we really, we grow year round because of the benefit of greenhouses. Um, so we can keep greens year round. Um, and then we really start ramping up in March. We start all our own seeds here. Um, and then it picks up in April, May to a lot of transplanting, which is getting the, those seedlings out into the field. Um, and then this time of year, end of mid to end of May, early June, um, we're, our gardens are full. Um, so we've got our first round of produce coming in. So certain crops will be year round crops or full season crops. So like the tomatoes, peppers, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, um, broccoli, a lot of those are longer term crops that'll stay in the ground for the full season. Other ones like uh, radish, turnip, uh, carrots, beets, uh, we'll do multiple successions of those. So we'll harvest them depending on the crop anywhere from 30 to 45 days after seeding. Um, and then we'll do another rotation of those. So we'll get a few rotations of those shorter term crops and then one rotation or one planting of those longer season crops. So it's a lot of patchwork. Uh, yeah, a little bit of a puzzle uh, to try and make it all fit and continue to just grow as much food as we can. Um, I said we are small scale diversified. I mean, that is we grow on about uh, three acres of land here. Um, and that includes the greenhouse space. When you think of farms in America, um, that's, that's tiny. I mean, we've got thousands of acres of farmland per farm uh, out in the Midwest and big production. So we're a little bit different model, but what we have to do is have integrated systems and really high turnover and rotation um, to make sure when we do harvest, we don't leave that soil bare for very long. Within 24 hours, we've got more seed or transplants into that soil. And is that also one of the principles of regenerative farming to keep it healthy? You need to Absolutely. constantly keep feeding it? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. One of the big things is you to, you don't want to leave soil bare. Um, so the sun can, um, yeah, kind of suck some, some, uh, the nutrition out of it and bake it down, um, and make the soil brittle. Um, and then rain events is the biggest thing, um, that you just get that soil that you've increased the soil health and depth to it. And you get a big rain event and it washes it out. So those roots of the uh, crops really help us keep the soil in place and just keep adding depth to the soil um, is what we're trying to do. Okay. Let's go into a little bit of detail on the different principles of regenerative farming, like no-till yeah. and other, but make it um, <laughs> understandable for just yeah. The everyday person and and why these practices are so important for um, the health of soil and for us. Absolutely. Okay, so I'll start with no-till. Um, so to start, tilling is the act of um, disturbing the top layer of the soil. So if you think about the soil um, and its depth, there's a full different range of an ecosystem that lives in that top layer of the soil. Tilling, what it does 
the intention and reason behind tilling um, is to get the weeds out of there, what we see on the top layer. What we don't see underneath is all the uh, micro and macro um, insects, bugs, nutrients. And by tilling that all up, it disrupts that uh, environment that they're living in and makes it uninhabitable. So they either leave or unfortunately they're killed during it. Um, so by no, by not tilling, we're keeping that soil environment healthy, stable, and those macro and microbiotic and animals and nutrients are all staying integrated in there in a healthy environment, which in the end, in a couple of years, we can deal with the weeds for a couple of years and just hand weed three years down the road, that system of the layers of the ecosystem in the soil is going to provide the correct amount of nutrition to the plants that we want to grow and not to the weeds that we're working on weeding out now. So does that mean that in a few years time that there's no weeds? They the almost weed, weed themselves out? That's the, that's the ideal um, that they do. Yeah, there's no weeds. Because what we're doing right now is we're preventing the weeds from going to seed. So there's no seed bank in that soil from the weeds. So by not tilling it up, we're not bringing up another weed seed bank is another benefit of it. Um, Got it. The less so that the nutrition's not there for the weeds, it's that the seed is not in the soil for those weeds to grow. And just what we intentionally plant will then be there. So yes, Got our it. weeding will go down by not tilling. Okay. So it's a lot of work in the beginning to get it set up, but then it almost becomes a little bit more easy to manage over time. 100%. Okay. Yeah. And you just kind of, at that point, it's a lot to, yeah, like you said, integrate it in the beginning and then kind of just let nature do its thing. And that's part of the benefit of these practices is after a few years, you can exhale and drop the shoulders a little bit and just, yeah, grow vegetables. Are you not at that stage yet? But soon. We're not there quite yet. Yeah, we probably have another uh, year or two to really um, get there. Okay, so we've got no-till. What are the other big ones we should know about? Yeah, so no-till, then there's uh, rotational grazing. Um, so I'll put rotational grazing and multi-species grazing together. Um, so I listed all the different animals that we have here. None of those animals stay in the same spot on this farm. We have tons of pasture land and we have... Um, we move them around. Um, so rotational grazing is just that act of moving our flock of sheep from one place to another. Then after they eat it to a certain amount, we move them to the next area. The whole idea of it is that, is that we do not want them to overgraze. Um, so we let them eat about 50% of the grasses in that pasture. They trample the other 50% and then we move them on. Um, so that um, allows that pasture to be healthy. It's not overgrazed so that the, the crops, the pasture that they prefer doesn't all get eaten and then provide an opportunity for the weeds to come in and take over. So that, that's where we go with that 50% margin. Now, where we on top of that, we stack multi-species grazing. So an example of that will be, we'll have our, chick, our laying hens, our chickens go through um, we keep them in one area for one week. Um, and then 
I'm sorry. We have our sheep go through first. So we have our sheep in a big area. Depending on how big it is, we move them anywhere from two to seven days. So let's say we move this group after five days, they go on to the next thing. After them, the chickens come in. Now the benefit of this is that the sheep have just laid their manure down in this area, which also provides us with just natural fertilizer. So we don't have to spray or add any chemicals. Problem with that is they like to eat in the sheep like to eat in certain areas. They like to drink water in certain areas. They get shade in certain areas. So there's heavy deposits of particular areas where their manure is. Now we utilize the chickens behind them to come in and what the chickens do um, is scratch and search for bugs. So in the piles of manure, there's bugs that are starting to grow. So the chickens go towards that. And what they do is they use their talons and they sift through that manure and by to get the bugs and by doing it they're spreading that manure which helps integrate it into the soil more evenly so that the it spreads it out in the whole pasture rather than just certain isolated areas that the sheep focused on is getting that nutrition and that natural fertilizer got it that's fascinating yeah <laughs> I mean, who it's knew chickens cool. could be so we, clever? And that's what we do is we try and really let the animals be who they are. That's a big part of it. Um, so something I learned early on was that uh, when I first got into it, I was just doing livestock. And um, the person who was training me told me that I, I'm not learning to be a livestock farmer. I'm learning to be a grass farmer. Hmm. And so what he meant by that was just utilizing the animals for what they naturally do and using them as tools. Um, so with that mindset, um, I utilize the sheep around here to be our lawnmowers. So we don't have to um, use oil in our lawnmowers to go mow that grass. They're out there mowing the grass and then doubling down, they are adding manure and fertilizer to it. In addition to them as tools, we get wool and meat. So... Um, that's another way to look at it, using the animals as tools. Yeah, you're sort of using it, almost that idea when you're thinking about cooking, like top to tail, using as yeah. much as possible, using the food, the, 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 the meat from head to toe so that you're not having any waste. And it yeah. sounds like this is the same sort of idea. Like how can we actually get the yeah. most out of this land without wasting anything? Right, yeah. And then as I mentioned, another way that we do it too is uh, we do have forests around here. Um, so that's where the pigs come into play. We put the pigs out into the woods and we let the pigs do what the pigs do and that's root and wallow. So they dig their noses into the ground and turn over all the understory. They rub up against the trees and girdle them so the trees end up dying. Um, and what does they, girdle mean? Um, it's kind of, uh, it's creating a ring around the trunk of a tree um, that then it stops the ability for nutrition to go from the roots to the canopy of the tree okay. so the tree eventually dies. So why we are acceptant of that um, happening is that what we're using the pigs for is creating new pasture. So they're being pigs, they're rooting and wallowing um, and making a mess of the woodlands. And then what we do after they come in is we sow seeds. Uh, we sow a pasture mix in there um, and that will grow up. And then two years later, we'll have our sheep in there. So we're increasing our uh, pasture land. Um, and by doing that again, we're holding more, um, 
we're sequestering more carbon because those pasture, those perennial pasture grasses have a long, deep taproot that can go down and can sequester carbon in the soil with those roots. Okay. Can you talk a little bit more about sequestering carbon? I remember from watching Kiss the Soil with Woody Harrelson that yeah. that was really the, the, the big thing that he was yeah. trying to share and get across, but yeah. share it to all of us. Yeah. So that's, I haven't seen that one, but it sounds like something. It's good. It's on Netflix, but you're doing a much better job. I have to say. All right, cool. Well, I'll see if that continues with this because I I don't know the science behind it. That's definitely not my specialty, but I think the the big picture idea is that we're losing a lot of carbon and greenhouse gases going out um, from whatever sources um, that they're going from. Um, the whole idea is to limit the loss of that because instead of burning a hole in our atmosphere, we want to keep that on planet earth. So sequestering carbon is just that idea of taking those greenhouse gases and um, locking them into the soil. Um, So trees do a good job of it. Um, Any plant matter does a good job of it. But really the two things that do the best job of it are perennial grasses and soil. So the more pasture land that we can get here and the deeper tap roots. Um, so what happens is, and again, science background, not my thing, uh, but somehow those perennial gl- grasses collect those greenhouse gases or the carbon. Um, and then they put that energy down into their roots. Each year with the different seasons, those roots die off and then they regrow. So with the carbon in those roots, the section, it's held in those roots. Then when those, that section of the root dies off, then that carbon is captured and sequestered in the soil. So it's not lost in there, it's held by the soil. Then those roots regrow the following year, new roots regrow out the following year when we get the summer season. And again, more carbon's being able to be held. And then again, that cycle of the season goes on, those roots die off, some of those roots die off and the soil holds it. So it's basically just passing that carbon from the air to the grass, to the roots, to the soil. Got it. Okay. Very clear now. Okay. Are there any other um, practices within regenerative farming that we should know about? Um, I think, yeah. So the, the, the difficult thing, yes. Um, there are many, um, the other one that we use here is cover cropping. Um, so again, like we talked about, um, that hot, that quick rotation to not leave the soil bare. There are certain times a year that we, towards the end of the season, we don't have a plant that has time to grow and produce a vegetable in that area. Um, So what we'll do is called cover cropping. So we'll use a specific plant. It's usually a a legume, which is like a bean or a grain um, or sometimes a grass um, that will grow in that area just to cover the soil. So that if we get rain events or wintertime, if we have snow, there's a root system in there and that soil is held there. Then in the spring, what we'll do is we'll cut it down and... um, yeah, either feed that to the animals or shred it up and use it as mulch. Um, yeah, those are those are the the highlights of the ones that we use here at Millstone Farm. Okay. 
Now, the thing with regenerative farming is, I think I mentioned earlier on, is there's no rights and wrongs. You need to do this. You can't do this. It's just the way that I look at it is just as simple as make, yeah, make this land better than you found it. Um, so a lot of farmers out there are doing some really cool things and uh, using systems um, either from other places on the earth that were just culturally developed there and now we're adapting here or elsewhere um, or finding different technologies or systems um, that we've lost in those cultural transitions that we're starting to bring back into the play now or a lot of people are using science to do some pretty cool things and understand the, the growth patterns of um, plants and weeds and animals um, and then integrating those systems so lots of different ways to do it um, and each farm will have its own uh, tweaks here and there on each of them as well. Okay, so this is all wonderful to get educated on it, to understand why it's so important. But for the everyday person, for the average person, is there anything we can do? Like we obviously have Absolutely. a lot of people living in cities. It's hard for yeah, people in yeah. cities to get to a farm, um, yeah, to have yeah. that connection. So what can just the everyday person do that doesn't necessarily you know, may probably doesn't have that much time, but yeah, wants absolutely. to do something. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest thing is just knowing where your food comes from. However, you can find those answers, um, whether it's asking the person in the aisle at the supermarket or emailing a local farm or making a, a Sunday visit to a, a farm day or a tour. Um, yeah, asking a question to your waiter at the restaurant of where was this grown? Um, is this fresh? Um, yeah, all things like that. Just ask questions, be curious. Um, you'll be surprised at some of the answers that, that you'll get. And then you'll really start to realize, okay, I need to be asking more questions. Um, yeah. So I think that's the biggest thing is find out. Yeah, and in most from. cities these days, there are farmer's markets. Yes, um, there, so yeah, that's a, a great place. To start yeah. yeah absolutely yeah talk to a farmer like that that's they know they care um they'll share their practices um yeah um and then is there anything that people could actually do at home yes yeah absolutely there's a couple things so something that we do around here um we call it no mo may um so by doing that we allow some of the um other plants other than grass grow in our lawn so that includes dandelion um that includes um yeah i'm just looking around here we've got plantain out here um yeah, oh wow perennial grasses we've got a few little um oak tree seedlings starting to pop up um so we do no more may and that just helps encourage to get some other plants and diversity into the lawn uh that we have and it brings in the pollinators um it helps add different nutrients to the soil just when these when these plants die they release certain um nutrients back to the soil um so that that's something that everybody can do and that's pretty easy you actually just don't do what you normally do or don't pay a landscaper to do what they normally do and then go to a farmer's market and spend that money um is another that well, is that a well-known thing or did you at millstone uh, it came through yeah fairfield county um which is the county that we're in in wilton um somebody i think from the land trust 
started it and just it kind of has taken off in the past couple of years. Um, so we're just, we're a proud participant in that. And some other, some of our neighbors do it with their lawns. Um, yeah. And as a farm, we just try and set, yeah, be stewards of the land and of some of the missions like this that other people have. So, yeah. It sounds like there's also just a lot of education that needs to start happening on why, even just as simple as why buying a fruit or a vegetable that doesn't look perfect is actually better for you. Yeah. Yeah. Is, is there anything that you're doing at the farm or you've seen other farmers doing to help educate, I don't know, younger populations, the younger generation. So they know. Um, yeah. Yeah. So all generations too. So with our CSA, that's a big way for us to educate. Um, so weekly with the CSA pickup, we'll send an email the night before of here's what's in your farm share. Here's a couple of recipes. Here's what's happening around the farm right now. Um, and then we often give them a crop that they're just, what is this? What do I do with it? So we provide them a recipe with it, gives them an opportunity to try it out. Um, and then we also just say, yeah, this is a crop that's in season. So kohlrabi is one that people just didn't really know about that we really introduced to our CSA members and they've become lovers. That's so funny because that's the one I would get. And I was like, what do I do with this kohlrabi? Yeah. I have yeah. no idea. Yeah. Um, I have lots of new recipes that I'm experimenting yeah. with because right. I don't go and pick certain vegetables anymore. I'm just letting right. it come to me and I do right. what I can with it. Yeah. Um, and then we do have schools out here. Um, so what's today, Wednesday? Tomorrow I'm having uh, 27 four and five year olds come out here and we'll walk around and we'll see some cute animals. Um, and then um, we'll walk through the gardens and we'll do a little project, um, either seeding um, some lettuce or tomatoes or mulching in some of the beds that we have and just get them yeah, to be able to walk around, see the place, um, and then also do something tangible that they can walk away with. That's great. I, I know Jackson and Memphis, with Memphis in particular, would love to do that. Yeah. Um, but that's great to introduce that to young yeah. children. And then I think some of the other educational things too, like you mentioned, um, yeah, there, there's a ton of movies out there, documentaries, there's tons of books. So, um, there's YouTube videos. Um, so if this is something interesting, you want to learn more, um, there's great lists. I mean, um, for me, one of the uh, um, books that got me into it was Omnivore's Dilemma. And one of the mov movies that got me into it um, was... Blanking you're, bl on you're blanking on it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> since you're talking about omnivores though, I do want to just touch on veganism mm -hmm. and I know you are not vegan and you do raise cattle there. Um, yeah. But I think a lot of people think, oh, well, we all need to be plant-based. I eat mostly plant-based because I know it works with my body, but I would not say if I went to someone's house and they fed me steak, I will eat it. Yeah. Um, so I'm much more picky on around the quality of the meat mm -hmm. and making sure I know where it comes from. So I'd love, you know, what's your thought on veganism? Yeah. And um, how should people in your, in your mind be eating? Yeah. Um, so I think, yeah, to start uh, going off the last comment I had was, uh, yeah, the resources. The Third Plate is a great book by Dan Barber. Um, he's a chef at Stone Barns uh, here, close by here in New York. Um, and he'll, yeah, kind of share what he speaks of in that book. Um, but yeah, I don't 
believe in veganism as a, a, a diet. I, I believe in everybody having their own choice and choosing what feels right for them. And for certain people that is veganism. And I respect that. Um, for me, it's not, I think, um, yeah, I think if you look at our, our, how our bodies have developed over, um, the centuries and in particular our teeth, um, we are, we are designed to eat meat and plants. Um, now certain people don't respond well to certain things and we all need to make certain choices in our life of both what makes us feel good, um, in our bodies and then also what makes us feel good yet yeah, walking in the world and standing tall and proud of who we are um yeah for me it's a diet of um yeah mostly plant-based with a meat portion there um not necessarily that it's the typical american diet of meat in the center and then uh, starch and uh vegetable um i think um, we kind of got to that road um, towards like the TV dinners of the 50s coming out um, and the mass production of um, these cattle lots that are not the right way to raise animals. Um, yeah, so I think more plant-based is, is good and beneficial, um, but I do believe that animals um, provide a benefit to the landscape. I know there's a lot of talk out there about them adding to the greenhouse gases, um, with the methane. Um, and I just, yeah, in certain ways that they're raised a hundred percent, you have these feedlots out in Texas that are thousands of acres and yeah, they pile up the manure in one area and the methane gets out. If you raise them, how we raise them with rotational grazing and multi-species grazing, all that carbon is going back into the, to the soil and there's no production of, um, greenhouse gases that are really impacting. Yeah. Uh, and that's why it's so important for people to actually really know where their meat, fish, produce is coming from, because actually everything can be raised in the right way and it can also be raised in the wrong way. So the right. more you investigate, the right. more knowledge you have and you can make then better choices. Right. Um, and I think a point for that too, on the other side of it for yeah, if people choose to be vegan, um, to know where, where the substitutes are. And one of the biggest ones is soy. Um, and that's the most monocropped and conventionally sprayed and genetically modified crop on planet earth right now. Uh, I am so glad you said that because I remember you first saying that to me a few years ago when it was like, veganuary and people were all trying to go vegan in January Yeah, and you making that comment, it really stuck with me um, yeah. because you think, Oh, I should do my part. I should, I should do that veganuary, yeah. but actually, unless we know where the soy is coming from and yeah, it's, it's not doing it any, it's not doing the, the planet any better. And that's where I think, yeah, coming back to our conversation before, it's an individual choice and mm. we all need to, to make those choices. It's our responsibility to have the information on those choices. There are tons of people out there standing on a pulpit telling us what to do. Um, and some are misleading. Um, so we all need to, to follow up and do our own homework and our own research and feel what's right for us because what's right for um, you or what's right for me or what's right for anybody else is it's all different. Um, we're coming from different backgrounds and, um, and that's great. And that's what is amazing about this life, yeah. diversity, yeah. everything. And that includes humans and the choices that we make. So, yeah. yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Just like being able to 
connect with yourself and actually be able to identify what your physical body needs. Yeah. And also how does that impact your mind? Cause it's, it is all connected. And that's why within conscious working and tribe, we really focus on three pillars with mind, body, and planet, because for us, they're all interconnected. Yeah. And if you start caring about yourself, that's going to have a ripple effect that ultimately will start caring about the planet, having a better impact on the planet. Right. Um, um, I'd love to know what you think of well-being or what well-being means to you. Yeah. Um, that's a good question. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, I think it entails a lot of what you just mentioned. And I like that three-pillar approach. Um, I think it's, um, yeah, well-being of self, of physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, um, health and just yeah focusing on ourselves um and when we're taken care of i think then we want to give that to others whether that's other humans whether that's um the soil or the plants or an animal whether it be a pet or a livestock um yeah i think the core of it starts with each individual and then it can be spread out and contagious to others um, how can people find you, Drew? I'm sure you're not on Instagram, but the farm. Personally, I am definitely, yeah, I'm not on there, but uh, the farm is, and that's probably one that you'd be more interested in following anyways. Uh, so that's Millstone Farm CT. That's our Instagram. Uh, what are, I guess they're called handles. Handle. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then uh, millstonefarm.org uh, is our website. Uh, we have tons of information on there about a lot of these uh, practices um, that we integrate at the farm. We've got a farm store on there. We've got the story. And also we've got some beautiful pictures. So if you're interested in seeing a little bit more about what we've been talking about, um, check that out. Uh, it's a good place to find us. It is beautiful. And the website is great. It does give a lot of information. And we'll put that all in the notes as well as the books that you've mentioned and the, the documentaries because awesome. that Food. would be actually really useful. Food Inc. That's Food Inc. I I Got wondering. it. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much for taking this Absolutely. time to share with us um, all your knowledge on farming, regenerative farming, organic farming, veganism, all the different practices. There was a lot um, that you unpacked. Yeah. And I know that our audience will have um, gotten a lot of useful knowledge for them to take forward. And we always say, you know, once you know, <laughs> you now have the choice to do things a little bit differently. Um, and you've given us now this knowledge. So I am grateful to you and I'm looking forward to coming to the farm and yeah. seeing you get married on the farm. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Can't wait for that. And yeah, thank you so much for having me on today. My pleasure to be here. Okay, everyone. Thank you so much. And until next time, be here and be well.